So what I'm going to do is set out in a little bit more detail how we've decided to collect some of these concepts together and define individual involvement in people's health and care. And some of the things that we found in our report and the key messages that are coming out from the report for us about what needs to be done to tackle, as Jeremy said, both the kind of practical level of barriers that we face in moving this agenda forward and the more fundamental cultural barriers and power shift that we need to see. Before I start, I should say that what we've chosen to do in this paper is focus on people as individuals getting involved in their own health and care and having power and control over decisions about them and their health and care. So we haven't looked at forms of involvement that encompass you know, community development, of people working together, or of um, patient leaders <coughs> representing and advocating in positions of de decision-making power and control over the system for this. We've just looked at individual involvement. That's not to say that we don't think that the, agen you know, uh, the set of agendas around collective involvement are, are not unrelated nor important. They Absolutely they are, and indeed I think... Um, if we are going to make systematic progress on involving individuals in their own health and care much more, then we need a more powerful voice at a, a, a systematic uh, and decision-making level across the system through um, the engagement and involvement of patient leaders and others. But here in this paper, we're focusing for now on people's individual involvement in their own care and treatment. And so what we've done is we've looked at these eight elements that we think fundamentally comprise what we need to be doing to transform individual involvement in health and care. And I'm just going to briefly introduce them to you, and they'll, they'll then be picked up in our, our further discussions today with some case studies and presentations of people that are really leading the way in this area in this country. So um, the first uh, over there at the left, number one, this is something for everybody, for all of us, relevant to all of us. Uh, this is about being engaged and involved in your own, maintaining your own health and keeping healthy. So we talk in the paper about the recent uh, NICE guidance on individual approach, approaches to behaviour change, the advice there for people about how to focus on uh, supporting people to, to think about their own health and take the steps they need to take to maintain healthy. And we talk also about how important it is to address people's motivations and capabilities, uh, their, their values, preferences and interests, their level of engagement in thinking and capacity for thinking about um, their own health when they may have, as in all of this, a life way, way and far beyond them and their own health. And I think my colleague Helen is going to talk in a bit about one particular concept called patient activation that is a way of thinking about people's capacity and motivation and, uh, and engagement in, um, in health and healthcare. The second one here is also, I think, relevant to everybody, this concept of shared decision-making. So all of us... Whenever we reach a point of a decision to be made about our health and care, need to be able to make that decision with the professionals that guide us and help us. We know too, don't we, that generally there's good evidence to show that clinicians, be they GPs, uh, specialists, uh, nurses and others, tend to think that they are doing shared decision-making, as it were, that they are sharing decisions with patients more than they are. I was fortunate enough to be at a fantastic session run by um, all of the specialist societies of the Royal Colleges of Physicians um, not long ago, where the absolute great and grand of the medical profession were given personally some uh, training in shared decision-making by uh, Alf Collins and the Health Foundation. And to a man, and they were all men at that point, I think that's changed now, but they were, they were at that point a couple of years ago, to a man they all said, we thought we did this in our daily practice. 
Uh, but now we all realise that maybe we didn't. Maybe we don't, and we're going to go away and change. Um, so there's, there's a lot to do. The third element here, I guess moving into number three and four here, thinking particularly about people with long-term conditions, people with regular ongoing connections with, um, with the health service, with ongoing um, health and care needs. So we look in number three at supported self-management, the idea that those of us with uh, one or more long-term conditions live with those conditions as part of our daily life, and what we want the health system to help us do is allow those conditions to have the least damaging effect possible on the ability to, for, for us to maintain our life, to live our life, to achieve the goals we want to achieve in the ways that we do. And supported self-management is the way that the system <coughs> could and should um, be helping us do that. So we talk in that section about concepts like collab collaborative care planning and how, and how far away we are from systematic access, as Jeremy said, to, um, to care plans, and particularly to care plans that are created in ways that are truly collaborative with people and that really assess and, and deal with people's own goals. But we talk about some of the leading-edge practice around, um, around this too, things like the House of Care model. The fourth section of the paper, personal health and social care budget. So there's been a real big commitment to that just recently, hasn't there, um, nationally from NHS England to ex extending and embedding uh, access to personal, personal health budgets. But there are huge practical challenges that we know of, don't we? Lots of good evidence, as in all of these, as Jeremy said, all of these areas have good evidence for why they're important and indeed how to do them. But there are still huge practical challenges about uh, giving people access to the advice and independent brokering that they need to, to, um, to manage those budgets, indeed giving people full access, in, in timely access to information about how much money they might have in their personal health and care budget to spend. And, and bigger issues too then about feeding that uh, those decisions that are made through people exercising power over commissioning through, com through personal health budgets into kind of wider commissioning. Because I guess one of the concepts, one of the ideas behind personal health and social care budgets, of course, is that al by allowing people to spend money themselves on the services that they want to help live their life and maintain their own health, we begin to allow people to have access to services that perhaps the health service uh, doesn't realise yet people want. And we want that information to be able to feed into wider commissioning. So we begin to build a system that is providing the services that people, uh, that people truly want and need. We've separated out in the fifth section involving families and carers. Now, of course, we had some debates about whether we just wanted to talk about involving families and carers throughout all of these other elements. And, if, and we do, and, 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 and I think it's it's important to, but we've separated out involving families and carers because it does take a particular attention of our professionals. It does require that. It requires a particular focus. It requires, for instance, that we know who the carers are in this country, that we identify um, carers and help people understand, help the system, help professionals understand who they are uh, and what help they need. And so we talk in that section also about you know, how important it is for clinical teams to see families and carers as genuine partners in care delivery patients. Another uh, sort of active choice here was to split out this next one, number six, choice of provider. Now, I think, I think if we lived in another country, we might not choose to split it out as a separate section, but this idea of choice of provider, you know, choosing where you go, which hospital you go to for your care and treatment, it was just, it was the, it was the way that the previous, the last Labour government really, really um, went for it, didn't they, about, um, in, this, in this whole agenda about patient involvement. It was the thing they chose to prioritise. People need choice. They want choice. They want to have choice over where to go, who to see, where to go for their outpatients appointment. It was, a, it was part of the last Labour government's attempt, wasn't it, to, um, 
to massively and indeed successfully reduce long waiting lists for elective treatments, saying, okay, one of the ways we're going to clamp down on these uh, and tackle these long waiting lists is by letting people go anywhere they choose for their treatment and indeed opening up independent sector treatment centres for some of that elective care too. So it feels like it feels like we need to separate it out because of our England context. In fact, of course, where you go should be just as much a part of any shared decision-making conversation as you know who you're seen by and what treatment you get, you know, what your care package is. But we've chosen to, to split it out there, I guess, because of the particular policy focus in this country. And we know we've still got a long way to go. There was a survey only earlier this year about patients in England that said that still only half of those had ever had a conversation with their GP before they were referred about where, where they should go for that appointment. Number seven here is participation in, in research. Um, you know, we've got a lot to be proud of, I think, in this country, haven't we, about our record in uh, clinical research, about the way in which we are a research-active health system, and indeed in um, patients participating in, uh, in clinical trials. But it's incredibly variable. So the NAHR, the National Institute for Health Research, conducted a mystery shopper exercise, um, I think last year it was, and found that, for instance, this is just one example, but found that only about 10% of hospitals in this country provide, or suggest in anywhere in their public notice boards or public information that they are a place where um, research is done and a place where you could um, get involved in participating in research and getting access to leading-edge treatments. And then the final section here, Section 8, evaluating services through feedback. So I guess what we're saying here is that fundamental to this this whole agenda is a system that genuinely understands, listens to, and seeks to improve what it hears about from patients. So um, here we talk about how important it is to get for the system to uh, get data from patients, get information from patients about how they're experiencing their care and information that they can use, not the kind of high-level summative satisfaction surveys that might give you a sense of a sort of comparative performance but don't really help people on the front line understand what it is they need to do to help people's experience be better in future. So I hope that makes sense to you. Those eight areas are what we'll then go on to talk about. People cut, as Jeremy said, people cut this agenda in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and I think although we seek in this report to offer, as, as Jeremy said, a certain amount of conceptual clarity, I would be the first to say that there isn't one answer to this. This isn't one thing. There isn't, this isn't the, the one and only answer to what, we need, you know, what individual involvement in health and care is, but it's our attempt to, um, to offer a framework that um, certainly we found useful. So what I want to end with today before we move on is just to give you some of the highlights in the report about what we think uh, specifically we'd like to see done in this area to make the kind of transformative change that, um, that we know we need to see. And this, is, this was difficult and is difficult, isn't it, to talk about and certainly to write about when you're talking about you know, a fundamental shift in power and control in the system, a shift in power that no country has systematically achieved, that is destabilising, that is scary, as Jeremy said, for the people with power, that would be you know, a, true, a true revolution and how we all collectively think about our health system, somehow turning that into a set of bullet-pointed re recommendations kind of takes the heat out of it, and, and you kind of lose, lose the sense of quite how fundamental this is. I know Sir Robert Francis, of course, when he kind of met this challenge about how do we achieve cultural change to provide compassionate care, he answered that challenge with 290 recommendations, didn't he? We haven't gone for 290, but we have gone 
for a few. And I'm just very conscious of the fact that as you read them, don't think that this is you know, a full list. There are many other ways of thinking about this, but we think some of these are some of the priorities and, and, and recognise that we, that we do feel that this list of priorities somehow inevitably fails to add up to the sum of its parts in the sense of this, the dramatic revolution, essentially, that we need to see in the relationship between patients and people and services. But that said, some of our priorities, well, we think we need to be reframing professional education and training in this country, so we need to be seeing a model of professionalism emerging that is based on working with patients, working with users, with citizens, with people, not on the kind of display of expert knowledge. We really need to get much more systematic in providing access to the tools and support that patients and professionals need to do some of this well. So have, you, have any of you seen, for instance, the, the fabulous patient decision aids that are available online that were, that, that were developed through the NHS Right Care uh, shared decision-making program. I've used them. I've got my dad um, to use them when, for, for, in, for, for, for times when they're relevant to us. But did, the, did, you know, did our GPs tell us about them? Absolutely not. But a long way to go to embed some of these that access to some of these tools. Clinicians need, you know, really large cohorts of clinicians need training in some of the some of the skills and shared decision-making. We haven't seen that yet. Whether that's, that's health coaching, decision coaching, risk communication. We also need to really get better at measuring involvement and holding organisations to account for this stuff. So Jeremy you know, rightly pointed to, and I think you sort of alluded to this when you said, let me give you some examples of, what, of what, you know, what we have measured so far, what we know so far. But actually at the moment we don't measure and hold our system to account really for this stuff. We hold it to account for the four-hour wait in A&E and we hold it to account for, you know, for financial reports or the 18-week referral to treatment target. Uh, measures do exist for this stuff, for, for measuring the quality of decisions. Some simple things, you know, 30-second things we can be asking all patients about. Did they feel they really got their, managed to get their point across and were heard? Um, but we don't do that yet. And so we need, to, we need to get much more systematic at that. And I think, I think also I'll end with one of our vaguer recommendations, but I think a fun, more funda- quite a fundamental one which is that if we're really going to understand collectively and make collective progress towards a quite different way of thinking about our system, then we need to have some sort of collective national conversation about this. I think it's very easy to be dismissive and cynical about the NHS constitution, isn't it? Nobody's read it, nobody knows what it is, words on a page. But it was the beginnings of an attempt to articulate what should the compact be between us and the system? What can they expect of us and what should we expect of them? And I think we need to be bringing, bringing all of us, bringing, it, bringing not just the people in this room who are already interested, already engaged, but everybody, the clinician who thinks they're doing this already or, or, or thinks about other things, the patient or the person who, who accesses the health system when they need but certainly doesn't engage in a really active and, you know, and, uh, and constant way in, in, in them and their health care and think, and think reflectively about their relationship with the system. Why should they? They've got their lives to lead. But perhaps the NHS constitution is the beginnings of, of something that we need to get uh, much cleverer at and much bolder at um, if we're really going to bring us all together on this journey. So thank you very much.